So if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And I want to tell you about a little bit of a, a family practice that we have. So one of the things that we do at night is when we have dinner together, once the conversation starts to die down, we have this practice of listening to audiobooks together as a family. We love story. And recently we finished the 1962 novel, um, A Wrinkle in Time, by Madeline Engel. I don't actually know how to say her name, but uh, it's probably French or something. And it is a weird story. There's tesseracts, there's time slash space travel, there's child savants, there are these three angelic figures named Mrs. Who, Mrs. Witch, and Mrs. What's-It. I'm not sure, did anyone read this back in the day in school? Uh, it's memorable, but also bizarre. And I really felt like it succeeded more in kind of communicating vibes and feelings than narrative and plot points. Yet as I've been sitting with this novel that we listen to together as a family, what's most striking in retrospect is the novel's villain, which Madeline Ang calls the it or the dark thing. It's this malevolent force. It's conscious yet disembodied that blankets and darkens planets in this kind of sci-fi novel that corrupts their inhabitants, mind, body, and soul. And you've got the novel's young heroine, Meg, who describes the it in this way. She says, it was a shadow, nothing but a shadow. It was not even as tangible as a cloud. Was it cast by something? Or was it a thing in itself? Meg looked. The dark shadow was still there. It had not lessened or dispersed with the coming of night. And where the shadow was, the stars were not visible. How could there be a shadow that was so terrible that she knew that there had never been before or ever would be again anything that would chill her with a fear that was beyond shuddering, beyond crying or screaming, beyond the possibility of comfort? Make it go away. It's evil. Now, Madeline Laang was a believer, albeit an unorthodox one, yet she grasped something about the nature of evil and the darkness that plagues our fallen and sin-sick world. And I sense the presence of her it, her dark thing, also as I read the Gospel of Mark. I think kind of our Western materialist, rationalist minds, we struggle with the amount of demons and exorcisms that are in Christianity's first written gospel. Because we recognize in our world, we recognize human selfishness and self-centeredness. We can identify various injustices and oppressions that afflict society, but we don't really have language for the general vibe of, of darkness and malevolence and despair that often seems to smother us. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had language for this. He wrote to the Christians of Ephesus, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil, in heavenly places. 
So in this struggle against spiritual forces of evil, these cosmic powers, this present darkness, what is our hope? Well, allow me one final excerpt from A Wrinkle in Time. And we're not alone, you know, children, came Mrs. Whatsit, the comforter. All through the universe, it's been fought, all through the cosmos and my, but it is a grand and exciting battle. Maybe it won't seem strange to you that some of our very best fighters have come right from your own planet. And it's a little planet, dears, out on the edge of a little galaxy. You can be proud that it has done so well. Who have our fighters been? Oh, you must know them, dear, Mrs. Whatsit said. Mrs. Who's spectacles shone out at them triumphantly. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Jesus, Charles Wallace said. Why, of course, Jesus. This lands me squarely back to one of my favorite working definitions of the gospel. Jesus has come to break the power of the darkness. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has defeated sin, death, and evil, and is making all things new, even us. And I want us to see how this is worked out in the story of Jesus as it is revealed to us in the gospel of Mark. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 21. And they, they being Jesus and his disciples, they went into Capernaum, a nearby town. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This is Jesus was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they question among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So some observations on what we just read. Those attending synagogue that Saturday were astonished by the authority with which Jesus taught. You see, the scribes and the rabbis, even with all their education, they tried to approach God's word with humility and care and nuance. They were often saying, well, the rabbi Hillel, my better, says that this passage should be interpreted in such a way. But the Rabbi Shammai, who is also wise and learned, says maybe we should read it this way. And Jesus, he walks in and he kind of cuts across that, that pious waffling and he speaks with the knowledge of God. And for those who hear, it's disorienting, it's bracing, it's refreshing. 
And in the immediate wake of Christ's clear, bold, authoritative instruction, a voice is raised in resistance. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Notice this is more than a contrarian heckler. This is more than some knee-jerk reaction to Jesus who's just unsettling the status quo. This was a man in their congregation, likely a regular who was, was tainted and oppressed by the it. Scripture says that this was a man who possessed or was possessed by an unclean spirit. A dark thing that had come to dominate and warp his life. I know who you are. We're back on the territory of authority. Uh, Demons in the ancient world were closely associated with magic, the practice of magic. And, And the goal of an ancient magician was to was to subdue some unseen demonic or angelic being and and control them and channel their power to their own end. And it was believed that one gained power over a supernatural force by invoking its true name. This would supposedly bind it to your will and give you authority over it. So outing Jesus as the Holy One of God is God's indispensable right hand. It's not a declaration of faith. It's an attempt to dominate Jesus. If they don't realize who they're dealing with, he is completely unfazed. He's fighting in an entirely different weight class. He has authority that's on an exponentially higher level of magnitude. And Jesus, he responds sharply. He doesn't respond with some elaborate incantation. He simply rebukes that evil spirit and casts it out of the man to the amazement of the crowd. Jesus is here to clean house, both the house of that man's life and the house of the synagogue itself. And I wonder prior to Jesus' arrival, if the people attending that gathering of God's people, had realized, had recognized that insidious presence in their midst. This is what Jesus does as a light in the darkness. He comes and they see. They see that the darkness is there, that the darkness is real, and that the darkness was uncomfortably close at hand. Then we fast forward. To Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. And it's a text that we kind of uh, skimmed, or we touched on a few weeks ago, but we kind of just skimmed through this part of the passage. And I want us to hear it with fresh ears again. Mark 3, 22 through 27. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub the Lord of the flies, another name for Satan. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he, Jesus, called them to him and and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan is, has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. A couple observations. It's funny to me that the most recognizable line in this passage you probably know because of Abraham Lincoln. I was a history major, but you probably learned too in high school, the, his 1858 speech when he says, and I can't do a Lincoln voice, but he had surprisingly high voice. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided it will become all one thing or all the other. I've always thought it was weird that Lincoln alludes to this scripture passage since it's talking about the household of Satan. Um, but whatever. Sorry, I'm a history major. I can't not think about these things. The religious leaders, though, they recognize that Jesus is operating at this higher magnitude of authority and they accuse him of sorcery, of using, channeling dark powers to deceive the people. And he kind of swats that down and he, instead he's going to tell this parable that's going to reveal what it is that he really is up to. Now that word parable, we don't use a lot these days. A parable is an extended metaphor. It constructs an imaginary world that the listener is then invited to step into. Jesus is crafting the scene and he's, he's asking us to kind of immerse ourselves into it and to see the world and our lives and Jesus himself from within the story's perspective. Because when we step into the stories of Jesus... It will change the way we see reality. He was a storyteller because I think he knew that this sneaks past our logical defenses. And his stories are able to challenge us in unique and profound ways. And the parable here is in verse 27. It imagines this strong man defending his house, his, his stronghold against some outside force or person that wants to steal his stuff. And I want you to visualize this house. See its strength and its structure in your mind's eye. Are there bars on the windows? Is there this natural line of defense, maybe uh, thorny bushes that surround the home. Is the homeowner there, muscle-bound and, and standing astride his threshold, you know, shotgun in hand, threatening furious violence against any who would come up against him? Really, this strong man sounds like a character to me right out of a Western movie. Do you sympathize with the strong man? This figure who is fighting tooth and nail to preserve what is his. Jesus' story is subversive. 
It's natural for us to identify with the strong man. And if I asked, who's the strong man? Most of you would give the Sunday school answer, which is Jesus. And you'd be wrong. (laughs) Jesus is in this parable, but he's the figure in opposition. He's the figure off screen who's causing such a ruckus, the one prompting the strong man to lock and load and stand his ground. And if the strong man ain't Jesus, we have to ask some questions. What's in the house? What has Jesus come to plunder? What does Satan have that Jesus could want? Dan started off our service with a reading from Isaiah 49. And it was about this coming time of of favor and salvation for God's people. And, And we heard about this figure that was ordained to deliver Israel. A figure that God helps and keeps and answers and gives as a covenant to his beloved people. So that they might be led out of bondage and out into green pastures. Well-watered pastures. It's a setting that speaks of freedom and nourishment and abundant life. It's a passage about the restoration of the land and of a family. But can I read you how the passage ends? This is Isaiah 49, verses 24, or yeah, 24 through 25. Can the prey, prey as in like animals that get eaten, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Imagine trying to snatch a small gazelle from the midst of a a pride of hungry lions. You'd be met with ferocity and teeth. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I, the Lord, will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I really think this is the key to understanding Jesus' parable. Does it help you understand What's in the strong man's house? What's the plunder that Jesus is coming for? He is coming to rescue people. Think back to that man in the synagogue with the unclean spirit. Don't miss him for all the fireworks. Jesus didn't. And again, Jesus is subverting our expectations We're expecting the strong man's house to be filled with his hard-earned wealth. Instead, we discover a very different sort of keeping. This is a dungeon filled with kidnapping victims. Men, women, boys, and girls who've been snatched, isolated, and enslaved. The strong man's the villain, and Jesus is our liberator. He's come to clean house. He's come to plunder souls back for God. And this really reminds me of that passage in Colossians 1, 
He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were stuck in the dark, oppressed by evil, held there by our sin, our shame, our brokenness. But Jesus came to effect our transfer, to take us from the strong man's dungeon and out into the light, out into the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you feel the deep sigh of relief in these passages? Try this one, 2 Corinthians 1, 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This leads me to the next question. How then did Jesus bind the strong man. How did he upset Satan's reign and bring light to the darkness? Well, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, we see three things, at least three things that jumped out to me this week as I reflected on this. First, Jesus resisted temptation. Mark 1.12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Jesus did not succumb. He did not allow the darkness to touch him or evil to gain power over him. He was not lured away and enticed by his desire. Instead, he surrendered always to the Father's will. And daily, he walked with God in costly obedience. And it says that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our plight, because as us, he was one who was tempted in every respect as we are. But he was without sin. Our victory does not hang on our success, but on his. We are imperfect disciples who cling to a perfect Christ. So he breaks Satan's power by resisting temptation. The second thing we see in the Gospel of Mark, we've already seen. Jesus exposed, rebuked, and threw off the devil's hold on people. He demolished the devil's work in the world. That's why there's so much exorcism in the Gospels. It's symbolic of his mission. Mark 1, 32 through 34, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He resisted temptation. He exposed, rebuked, and threw off the devil's hold. And the third and final thing we see is that he binds the strong man by giving his life. For even the Son of Man came, Mark 10, 45, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is so counterintuitive to us. 
Our Savior came to lose on purpose with a purpose. That's how he wins. That's how he rescues us. That's how he forgives our wrongdoing and makes us new. He defeats evil by being our spotless sacrifice, our perfect substitute for us. That's why he arrives on the scene and in the gospel of John declares this. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world the dark thing, Satan be cast out. And I, Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Is this starting to make sense? Is this starting to fall into place in your mind? Let's do a rapid review. What have we learned? The darkness is here. It's real. It's uncomfortably close at hand. It's corrupting us and our communities. But Jesus has come, God's own son. God in the flesh has come with an authority that is on an exponentially higher level of magnitude. He's come to break the power of darkness, to give his life so that evil sin and death might be defeated and all things might be made new, even us. And how did he bind that enemy that seeks our destruction? By resisting temptation, by rebuking and exposing and throwing off the devil's hold, by laying down his life. And why did he do it? To plunder the strong man's house, to rescue people held in bondage, oppressed by their sin and shame and brokenness, to save those far from hope, and away from the light. One last little monologue from A Wrinkle in Time. The it invades the place inside of us where hope and joy lives and replaces it with jealousy and judgment, pain and despair. This is what the it does, one person at a time, until fear takes over. Fear turns to rage and rage leads to violence and there is a tipping point. Jesus refuses to leave us in that place, to leave us lost in the dark. He refused to allow evil to vandalize God's good and beautiful world. We have an enemy that seeks nothing more than death, theft, and destruction, but it says that Jesus came. Why? That we might have life and have it abundantly. Life everlasting, unquenching, victorious, and eternal. He has moved heaven and earth. He has given his very life. He has defeated death itself to save us. And he's here, not only to clean house, but to rescue children, to bring us home and to adopt us as his own. So as all of that starts to sink in, we have to ask, what's next? What comes after that? And I think there's two things. One, in light of this, we have to have no fear 
Because Jesus has come and he's here and he will come again. And we have to hold on to hope and know the heart of our Savior. Even on dark days, know both his incredible strength and his unstoppable love. My son Elijah sometimes gets scared in the dark. He doesn't like the dark. And two, sometimes we lose heart when we see the darkness in our world. One of the things we've taught Eli is to sing a little song at night when the darkness threatens. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. Isn't that what we're clinging to? Isn't that the heart of this message? He's big, he's mighty, he's for us, and he's making an end to the darkness. Have no fear because he is stronger than all. And hold on to hope because you know his heart towards you. Towards anyone lost in the dark, it's love. He yearns to bring you home, home to his heart. So not only do we sing that song of hope, it doesn't have to be that song, you can upgrade, but I'm still stuck there. But also for those of us who've experienced Jesus' rescue in the past. Our charge is to live with him in the light. One final verse for us, Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Jesus is cleaning house. He's bringing light to the darkness. He's breaking evil's malicious hold on us and our world. So now our invitation is live in the light. Don't go back into the darkness. Live in the light. Cultivate the fruit of the light, what is good and true and beautiful and right. Discern what is pleasing to God, what brings light and warmth into our world's lifeless cold. Don't dabble in the darkness. Don't flirt with it. Instead, shine a flashlight on it. Expose it and ask God's spirit to do his work of rescue. Draw ever closer to the light of life that is Christ and join him in his work. Calling people out of the darkness, of rebuking and rolling back the works of evil that so folks might be liberated and brought home to God. God, sometimes we see the darkness. 
Oh, but we worship the one who's the light in the dark. And we are grateful. May we join you in the light. May we be agents of your grace, your blessing, your rescue out in the world. But more than anything, we say thank you for saving us when we could not save ourselves. Thank you for being stronger than everything, God. And we thank you that your love is stronger than that. In Jesus' name we pray and celebrate. Amen. Amen.